This is WCPO FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. WKRC, Cincinnati. This is the nation station. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 171. Today on our show, director Adam Stovall. Somewhere around there, like I finished the assembly cut, which is just where you put all the scenes together, and it's not very good. There's a story of George Lucas telling Steven Spielberg, if, you, if your assembly cut is good, your movie is probably bad. Adam's a tri-state native, was written and directed the film A Ghost Waits, which was filmed in Cincinnati and features music and t-shirts from the Queen City. From his home in New York City, Adam discusses his journey from TV and movie-loving kid in northern Kentucky to film director. Now, if you've been liking the podcast, you can help support it by PayPal or Venmo. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com and chip in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen for that special promo code for 20% off near the end of the episode. Now let's talk about the making of A Ghost Awaits with Adam Stovall. Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati. C-I-N-C-I-N-N-A-T-I-Cincinnati She came down Cincinnati Just maybe think of me once in a while I'm at CincyShirts.com in Cincinnati Well, I guess we'll uh, we'll start from the top. You're a Covington native. I was born there, yep. And so, what high school? <laughs> I went to Boone County. Boone County, okay. Yeah, Very... I was actually there when Sean Alexander was there. Oh, neat. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. remember that. Yeah, I worked at the, uh, I think I worked at the Florence Mall around that time, or maybe it was a little bit after that, that he was oh. there, that you guys were there. I wasn't there in the, I was like mid to late 90s, I was there. Yeah, yeah, he graduated in 95, and I okay. graduated in 97. Oh, great, okay. So you probably, you probably bought some CDs from me at Musicland. <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> there you go. All right, super. So, uh, growing up, were you like interested in film and filmmaking and TV, or did that come later? How did all that start? I was very interested in film and TV when I was little. Um, we we moved around a little bit uh, when I was very young, and like so, TV and movies kind of became my friends. I remember like when Night Court aired its finale, I cried because I felt like I was losing my friends. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, like I've just always kind of I bonded with storytelling, I guess. And yeah, movies like you know, I I my my parents say like the very first movie I ever went to, I was a month old and they took me to Superman and I was very well behaved. Uh, <laughs> with, with, uh... So it's just always been a part of my life uh, and then I remember when Back to the Future was making its network television uh, debut, which used to be a thing. Yeah. They were like the big thing was that they were going to show the first bit of footage from Back to the Future 2 at a commercial break. And so I was like sitting in our basement. And I had like a little Chef Boyardee, Chef Boyardee pizza. I had my Back to the Future storybook. I was watching this. And like that was kind of the first time I thought like this means a lot to me. Like, I don't see other people, you know, fixating this hard on, on this stuff. So, and, you know, from there, I mean, I just, I loved movies and I would, I would watch like 
Navy SEALs and want to be a Navy SEAL and I'd watch Backdraft and want to be a firefighter and at some point I realized I think I just want to make movies <laughs> and then I could do these jobs for you know a, a few months or a year or whatever at a time and kind of learn about them and then move on to something else. When did you, so you're at what age when Back to the Future hits network TV what what time of your life are we uh, talking here? Gosh I mean, I'm guessing seven or eight. Okay. And and this is the time you realize that movie making and television making are a thing. Yeah, not that I understood like the uh, all of the stuff that goes into making it, but I understood that these were made by people. <clears throat> and then actually, when I was in high school, uh, I saw Pulp Fiction in the theater, and that just kind of blew everything open for me. Of like, oh, this is far more elastic than I thought it was. Like, you could do all kinds of stuff. <laughs> in this uh, in this art form, um, and that's that sent me down a road of like four hundred blows, and you know just because Pulp Fiction's very heavily you know his mixtape of the French New Wave, and so I just started watching all those movies, and yeah, like it just it never stopped being fascinating to me w- just how much people can accomplish and explore um, through cinema. It's interesting because when I was uh, – I was telling this story to my daughters the other day. When I was – I must have been – because my brother hadn't left for the Navy yet. I must have been seven, eight, nine, somewhere in there. He took an old toy chest of mine and he built a uh, like a spaceship inside of it for my stuffed animals. But it wasn't really a spaceship. It was a TV set for a TV show about these animals being on a spaceship. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And I, because, um, a book he had read that I started reading, even though I was young, was, uh, The Making of Star Trek. And it went into the details of how they made the series. And it was written in the, right after the series ended, I think. So it gave you all this great detail about how they had to build sets and all this other. And I was just, I was fascinated as much by that as I was by the show itself. So, uh, interesting to know there are other people out there that kind of thought the same way, that thought beyond uh, the actual story and also think like, well, how did they put this together? Did you start getting curious about that when you started watching like Back to the Future and, and things like that? You start studying films in that way? Yeah, especially once DVDs started because we never had a Laserdisc player. But once DVDs and the bonus features of DVDs, when I could see behind the scenes stuff and actually see – you know, the work that that goes in. Because I also, I mean, you know, I grew up in Northern Kentucky, so it's not like there were, I could visit a set or anything. You know, nothing was really, I mean, Procter & Gamble was commissioning a ton of stuff, but that's a little different. Oh, that's right, um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, like, you know, you, you start seeing the behind the scenes, you start, like, I, I and I would just consume interviews. You know, I, I would read and listen to interviews of filmmakers, and then I would also, because I was kind of the last generation before the internet, I would just scour newspapers and magazines for like top 10 lists and reviews that sounded interesting. And I would just make my little list and then go to video America or video village in, uh, in Erlanger, Kentucky, and just kind of dig around in the, in the stacks and see what I could find. Uh, did you sometimes just go in blindly and say, oh, this looks interesting? Or did you have a set, like a shopping list and like, oh, if they have this movie, I'm going to, I'm going to get this. Both. I would I would I would kind of alternate between the two. You know, sometimes it was like, no, I have to see, you know, I have to see this versus, you know, we're, OK, we're going to swing by the video store, grab two things and you just kind of wander the aisle and build a stack of 20 tapes in your arms. And then, you know, mom's like, OK, no, like, you know, that's rated R. That's this, that's that. Like, OK, these two, these two are OK. 
So okay. I'm curious. <laughs> when when I worked at Blockbuster, one of the things they would do was, especially when there was a big movie out, uh, you would of course have the, it would be floor to ceiling with boxes of that movie, but the middle yep. row at eye level or just above or below would be films that if you like this film, we think you'd like these films. Did those ever kind of? Did you ever find films that way? Yeah, I, uh, the the staff recommendation shelf was always like a favorite thing of mine, and I I also worked at Blockbuster and kept trying to get them to like let us do that. <laughs> I'm shocked they yeah. let us do that because we were. It was actually our decision. Like, and our manager would say, "Well, you're in charge of this part of the wall, and just make sure it follows, you know, the company planogram, whatever that's alphabetical and whatnot." But you get to pick the movies look up what would go with these and you get to do it and some i think sometimes they would suggest stuff but we were also allowed to put if they only had like two suggestions and the shelf held eight boxes we could fill in the other six if i'm recalling that correctly oh that's cool i don't think we ever got to do that i no no i don't think we ever got to you know i, I worked at the blockbuster on turfway road in florence for a couple for yeah for a few years no, we were far too regimented. They were, they ran a pretty tight ship when I was there. That was probably after I left then, yeah, because uh, they had just been expanding and expanding. But I digress. You, you know, you'd mentioned TV shows, too, because I'm, I'm more of a TV guy than a movie guy, it turns out. And you said Night Court was one of your favorites. What drew you to Night Court? I honestly have no idea. <laughs> it was on. It was a sitcom. I was a comedy nerd. I liked Harry Anderson, and I... Uh. I mean, I had no awareness of him outside of Night Court, but I just, I liked, you know, I liked all the characters and I was a kid, you know, it just, it resonated for whatever reason. What was in that that sweet spot? It was on, I think, uh, the Thursday nights uh, after Cheers, maybe, or before Cheers. It it was in that line. He was a a recurring character on a couple episodes of Cheers. That's how I just, and concurrently saw him on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and put yeah. two and two together. So I was just kind of curious. That's kind of a a semi-random one. It was a big hit show. It ran for, what, eight, nine seasons? <laughs> yeah, I know. You just, you never hear about it anymore. But I, I watched a ton of TV as a kid. I mean, you know, I'd stay up late on Fridays and watch Monsters and uh, Friday the 13th, the series, and, ta- you know, all that, Tales from the Crypt, all that stuff. I watched all the sitcoms, Roseanne, and just, uh, just all of them. <laughs> uh, so I'm curious, what were too much television? What were some would be some of your uh, top sitcoms? Because the the Bob, our friend of the show Bob Herzog did a post on Facebook the other day saying that Rolling Stone had released a list of best sitcoms. So he asked people, "What was your favorite sitcom?" You can only pick one. Don't put multiple. So I said, I thought for a minute. I thought it, it's tough. It's a tough choice, but I'm gonna have to go with Mash. Uh, even though there's you know Taxi WKRP, I would have thrown in there too. But so what what would be for you would be like your big you know three four or five. I think Community has to be up there. Oh, I'm not. I've only I, seen a few episodes. I love that show. I remember. I remember like telling a friend one time. I love that show. Like I love a person. Like forgiving of their flaws and everything. Like it just Community spoke directly to me, as it did for many people. You know, it was never a big hit, but it was a huge hit with. with uh, it had a it had a very passionate fan base. Yes. Um, and I, I just like the how it played with the form and genre and yeah, it's a really it's a it's a really cool show. What's another? Gosh, it, The Simpsons. I mean, obviously, like I was on um, Fox nineteen yesterday, and I just had this moment of like, oh my god, I used to watch The Simpsons and The X Files on this channel, and like this is insane. Uh, <laughs> it's so funny. I don't have like a lot of nostalgia, so it's I think everything would be like very recent. Like I don't know if you saw You're the Worst, but it's this. 
I mean, it. I don't know if people would be okay with calling it a sitcom because it did a lot of really dramatic stuff. But it was a half-hour show on FX for a few years, okay. and that was just an amazing show. Aya Cash's performance on it, mm. like her face should be on money. She's, a, she's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> I like that expression. I'm going to steal that. I love that. <laughs> What's it called? You're, you're the worst. I, I've yeah, heard of this. Worst. It's on Hulu now. It's on. Uh, okay, on Hulu, as my friend Jimmy Pardo would say. All right, on Hulu. Hulu. There we go. All right, I'm gonna I'm, I'm, I'm gonna check that out. So, do you go back and would you watch old episodes of Night Court? I know one of the the free networks that we get, you know, over the air. I know runs it. I think it's Laugh might be the network that runs them in blocks of six or seven or eight during the day. Do you go back and watch them, or are they is it is it kind of past its its sell by date? I don't, but that's not. I don't think it's past its sell by date. I'm pretty sure I'd sit down and still at this point sitting down and watching anything from the 80s is kind of fraught because man, that was a different sensibility. I, you know, I stream everything, even like live TV. I watch on YouTube, so it's. I I know my dad watches Laugh and Me TV. He loves Me TV. Me TV is great. Yeah, like. But it's so funny to me because it'll be like, oh, Perry Mason's on. And I'm like, you literally have the entire series on DVD right there next to your well, TV. Same. Like, Not Perry Mason, <laughs> but like Star Trek. Which is What's funny, yeah. though, is they only have – they don't have the whole catalog of all those shows. They have about – there's 250-odd episodes of MASH. I think they have about 100. There's 79 episodes of Star Trek. I think they have um, – 40, 45, because I see, I don't see a lot of ones, and I see other ones come up in batting order again before they're supposed to. So that's yeah. the only flaw with those networks. They, they're not, I guess they can't buy all the rights. They must get them cheaply if they don't buy the whole, it's really weird. Yeah, there's, especially with stuff from back then, like music rights can be really complicated. That's why WKRP, you can't, you just can't find it. Like, um, Yeah, they finally got that sorted, and they have like 90% of the music now, and so Shout Factory went back and re-released the whole thing. So you still have, like, I think almost all of the music now. There's still a couple of songs they couldn't get, which seems silly. I mean, if, take the take the money and run, folks. <laughs> the the money is the issue. You know? Yeah, yeah. Because some people want more than, you know, it's, it's, it's like any negotiation. You know, Party A wants as much as they can get. Party B sure. wants to pay as little as they can. Yeah. Let's call the whole thing off. But yeah, I like I had the entire, I had every episode of The X-Files on tape for a few years. I would just... Because it, it went in a syndication, and so I would be taping the new episodes, but I would also be taping the old episodes in syndication. And now, you know, you say that to somebody, and they just look at you like you're crazy. Because, oh, like, yeah. well, a, what is tape, and b, yeah. why don't why didn't you just stream it? it it's was- funny. If, uh, a couple years ago, I was I was uh, still in Cincinnati, and the Criterion Collection. There's this movie called Chimes at Midnight that Orson Welles made, and I had been wanting to see it forever and had just kind of given up hope that I ever would because the rights uh, issues were just too complicated. But then the Criterion Collection decided to dig in and get all the rights sorted out, and they did, and they released it. And before they released it on uh, on disc, they actually ran it in some theaters. And so uh, some friends and I drove up to Columbus to watch it at OSU. And I am just like vibrating with excitement. I am so happy. And we get to the, the box office, and it's this like 20-year-old OSU student. And uh, she's like, why are you like this? And I was just like, I've been waiting 20 years to see this movie. I'm so happy. And she's like, why don't you just rent it? <laughs> and it's like, I don't have time to explain. <laughs> like, come on, just <laughs> don't. 
if, if I've been waiting 20 years, chances are you can't rent it. I don't just forget that exists, but yeah, it's funny. It's funny now to talk to kids, basically, you know, anyone under 30 and about what it used to be like, of like, no, you had to like really work to see stuff. It wasn't just all on the internet on your phone and everything. And we've lost a lot of stuff. I was going to say you you taped X-Files. I taped Crime Story when USA Network reran it back in the 80s, a couple years after it left the air. So I'd set the recorder every night at midnight and tape the episodes because I'm like, I might never have this again. Now, Pluto runs it. You can stream it on demand, but sometimes Mm. they take it off. And I think the DVDs are out of print. So if I want to watch Crime Story, I've got to open up the DVD cabinet behind me and get out my DVDs because you can't stream it. It's not on Netflix. It's not on Hulu. It's not on any of those. I mean, even with streaming, like you're still at the mercy of their licenses. So, you know, shows kind of come and go. I mean, I... Episodes might be missing. Sorry? Episodes might be missing. That happened with The Tick. The Tick, I have the DVD set of the first season. There's three episodes missing, and they put a note in the DVD and said, the guy that wrote the three episodes we couldn't come to an agreement with, so they're not in this. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and like negotiating with our distributor was such an interesting experience because like we, you know, we were very ready to self-distribute and kind of you know fight for any land that we could get in the, in the landscape fight for any eyes that we could get and then arrow was like no no no, we want to acquire you and we went back and forth for a while and it was so because i've never been through this before mcleod has been through a couple of negotiations with a couple other movies but he's the star um, of the film by the way and mcleod andrews who's my my producing partner and all this and the male lead in the movie and my best friend i just like dropped a name and didn't explain it (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it was really cool to see like i have a much greater appreciation now for how much work goes into it and why certain things don't happen. So like it makes Twitter even more frustrating now because I actually know the reasons why things don't happen. And you know, when somebody's just like, come on, just do this. Like, why not? And it's like, well, because money and yep, that's it. dignity. And yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's go back. Uh, you graduate Boone County high school and then yep. do you, are you, do you go off to college and study film? Where do you, where do you go from there? I went to the army for a year. Oh. I was very good at my job, but I was very bad at the army. <laughs> <laughs> what did you do in the army? Uh, what? What did you do in the army? I was a quartermaster. I was automated logistics specialist, a 92 Alpha, which made, I just – I ran um, – I got stationed in Hawaii with an, an engineer battalion, and I basically ran their motor pool and made sure that they had all the, the parts that they needed. And then I ended up helping a few other – units there on the base in Schofield Barracks because I was always in trouble so I could never go have any fun so I was just always working. <laughs> what, what got you in trouble? Firstly, my weight. I've always struggled with my weight and even doing the PT, even doing all the push-ups and sit-ups and, you know, and I had I had a good run time. I could do two miles, at, you know, uh, well within the, the, the times required, but when, uh, but I weighed too much. So I would get flagged for that. And, you know, they would measure my stomach and neck and try to, you know, I mean, it was just, it was, it was awful. Like it was very dehumanizing, but because I weighed more than they wanted me to weigh, I was just always flagged. So when you're flagged, you basically just can't participate in a lot. You don't have a lot of the freedoms that you would have otherwise to kind of come and go at your leisure. Every now and then I could go see a movie at the theater on base. And that was amazing. But for the most part, I was kind of stuck in the barracks or in the office. 
Oh, wow. And, and well, yeah, my I had a really good first sergeant who at some point was just like, you should not be here. <laughs> like you you're not you're not an army person. Like we're just going to let you go. So I was and I got a, an honorable discharge, unable to adapt to military lifestyle. That's that's a real thing. <laughs> so I did that for a year. I came back. I went to NKU. And then I just kind of started not going all the time and kind of bouncing around and taking jobs in all these different industries. I worked in politics. I worked in, I ran bars and restaurants. You know, we've, we've, we've probably run into each other a few times over the years and I never went to film school. I was always curious about it. And so I would like read, you know, magazines. I, I was always a big reader. I've always been a big reader. And one particular favorite was the creative screenwriting magazine. I would, I mean, I, I read that as long as it ran and then they started doing a screening series and a podcast where they would show a movie and then have a Q and a with the filmmakers afterwards. And there was an audience there and the audience could ask questions. And I would, I was working at DHL out at CVG uh, overnight doing data entry. And I would just listen to podcasts and audiobooks like constantly and creative screenwriting podcast was one of my favorites. So when I moved to LA and what prompted this was I was living alone just by, right outside Eden Park. Uh, it was just, just me and my dog. And my dog of 16 years dies. And I went home and it was it was a very empty place. It kind of put in a stark relief just how like what a non-life I was leading. So I decided, okay, I got to change. And I sold a bunch of stuff and I moved across the country and got a place in North Hollywood and I was just like, okay, well, let's, you know, I'm not going to move 2,500 miles and stay in my bedroom. So what do I do now? I started going to the creative screenwriting screening series. And I think like after two or three, I just talked to Jeff, uh, Jeff Goldsmith, who was in charge and said, hey, it kind of seems like you could use some help. <laughs> and he said, yeah, that would be great. And so I started working in that and I did that for about eight months. And then one night after a screening, he pulled me aside and said, hey, you want to you want to write an article for the, the magazine? And I said, yes, I, because I'd been reading it for so long, I knew what they would want. So I wrote, you know, a, a, an article and they liked it. And I got to just keep doing that. And I wrote for them. I spent a few years. I eventually was a contributing editor for the magazine by the time it shuttered. But that was kind of my first real film education was interviewing working filmmakers and having like I would say like I, I want time I want 30 to 30 minutes to an hour you know I couldn't always get that but uh, being able to ask them all the questions that I had and questions that I felt like weren't being asked elsewhere uh, was just the best so that was kind of my first phase of my film education and then the magazine shut down i got it i started working in production i got i was like i was a pa on some shows uh, i was a second ad on a on a independent film shot in louisville and that was kind of the next phase of my film education was like having a front row seat to how a, a film actually gets made where does money have to go what resources are actually essential that really prepared us to, when it came time to make a ghost weights of saying okay well we don't have a lot of money but how do we use basically how do we use a dime to buy a dollar? You know, how do we steer into the strength of what we have? And so, yeah, I never went to school, uh, but I got a lot of practical education. So 
when you were in Los Angeles and you were interviewing people, were you, do you kind of interviewing people not only with the notion of creating a good article for the magazine, but also kind of stockpiling this information that one day you might <laughs> use? Was that? Oh, yes. Okay. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. And I got, I mean, I was really fortunate. They were very happy with me. Uh, the magazine, I mean, so I got to interview, you know, Lars von Trier and Wes Anderson and JJ Abrams and all just oh, all wow. kind, you know, all kinds of really incredibly talented people. And the film community is just very warm and welcoming. You know, they they want to talk. They want to share, you know, this stuff, especially, you know, if, if you're interested, because, you know, one thing that I kind of ran into when I was in Cincinnati was the job of filmmaker isn't like people kind of treat it like it's an alien, <laughs> you know, like because it's not a real job, like, quote unquote, real. You know, it's not like you don't go to an office and have a boss and all that stuff. It's much more nebulous um, and kind of. Uh, yeah, like it was interesting to go to Los Angeles and now here in New York and there's a a practicality to it or an understanding that like, oh, yeah, you do that like. That's your that's your job, which feels really nice. And I, I I now can kind of recognize that I was getting some of that from some of these guys like Edgar Wright, you know, who's just like, oh, you also speak this language. Let's have a conversation. That was that was a really cool. That was a really cool thing. And it also did I see where you dabbled in the standing up comedy or did I? I did. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> I so I dabbled in stand up and then my my buddy. Kevin Tucker and I had a comedy group called the Scott Walsh Comedy Foundation that we did a we did a month of shows at the Madison Theater in Covington and then we did a few shows at a bar in Cincinnati. I think it's what is now Motor. Like whatever okay, Motor yeah. was before it was it, before now like right. I think that's where we were. Our neighbors um, in over the Rhine. Yeah. Well, they're two doors down it, from us, two or three doors down from us. But yeah, we, yeah, we, we know yeah. the motor folks. It's uh, so funny. I like, I don't remember. It's been years and I, who, who cares? The guy that ran that place stole my hat. Like we, we literally <laughs> passed a hat to see if we could get some money and he kept my hat. Oh my God. <laughs> so we stopped doing that. It was interesting. That was really fun because it was, it was a hybrid of stand up and sketch and Pretty quickly realized that I loved sketch a lot more than I loved stand up. I and I was writing all of the sketches, and I remember like one time, <laughs> I think it was the show that Wussy opened because we would have a musical guest open for us, and I think Wussy opened for us. And then I walked out to do my stand up and just blanked entirely, like. And people were like yelling out like talk about Star Wars or something. Like I just I was like I. I'm not aware that anything has ever existed. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> uh, and I just walked off, I think. <laughs> did you ever do uh, uh, any of the open mics at like Go Bananas? I don't think we ever did a Go Bananas open mic. We did some open mics around town. I feel, I think Go Bananas might have felt too real for, for me. I ah. think Kevin probably did them. I, I, I struggled for a very long time with uh, a complete dearth of self-esteem and confidence. So, 
I could do kind of smaller things. I, I even now, like even, and I do have self-esteem and confidence now, but like, I still have to make things kind of smaller for myself because I would kind of freak out <laughs> if I, you know, if I didn't like the stuff that's going on with the movie right now, it's just been so much bigger than I expected. And so I kind of have to make it smaller for myself at times, but yeah, go bananas always felt like that's where like real comedy happens. <laughs> and so this uh, was this. And so all this was before you moved to Los Angeles. Yes. Okay. So you went from Los Angeles, and you've never returned to to the tri-state on any, any kind of permanent basis. You've you went I went to New York. I went to Los Angeles. I started bouncing back. I was there for a few years, per, you know, and then I started bouncing back and forth between Cincinnati and L.A. Okay. Yeah, and 2014 was kind of my last. Like I was there. I was in L.A. for that year. Uh, I was living with McLeod. And we were trying to make another movie and that fell apart. We got really close and it was really dispiriting. And so I'd come back to Cincinnati to uh, at the very start of 2015 to kind of figure out what would be next. I was not in a great place. I'll tell you, like I, I was I, I, I struggle with depression and all that stuff. So I was in a very down place and I'd been alone for a very long time. And I got back to Cincinnati and very quickly met met a woman who became my girlfriend for a year and a half. And that was a nice confidence builder. And then, you know, some, uh, later in 2015, I had the, uh, my friends, uh, Jen and Brian price had me over to play a video game called PT, which is this like first person haunted house puzzle game. It's very creepy. It's very atmospheric. It's designed by Guillermo del Toro and Hideo Kojima. And, um, and I just had them cracking up laughing because I was reacting to it the way I would react to a haunted house, which is like, no, I don't think I do need to investigate that strange noise. I'm good where I am. (laughs) And, and so they're cracking up and Jen pulls her phone out to record me playing the game. And that's, that got me thinking like, you know, I've never seen a haunted house movie with a character like me at the center of it. And that kind of that along with, uh, a web comic called Saturday morning breakfast cereal, a man asks a woman what she thinks is the most American movie. She says Ghostbusters, because here's a movie where you have demonstrable proof of an afterlife, but the whole thing is about growing a small business and navigating government (laughs) bureaucracy. (laughs) And I thought that's really funny, but also like, she's right. Like spot on. There's an afterlife. I would have so many questions. And so those two things kind of formed the spine of a ghost waits. And that was the end of 2015 go into 2016. um, One of the investors that we had met, McLeod and I had met while we were trying to make the movie in 2014 remained really excited to make something. And he was talking to our mutual friend, Nick Thurkettle, uh, who is also a Cincinnati native lives out in LA, uh, makes a uh, filmmaker, but he was talking to Nick and said, what's Adam up to? And Nick said, Oh, he just had this weird haunted house idea. And so uh, this is MF Thomas, one of our executive producers. He and I got on a phone on the phone and just you know, I told him what I saw of the story. I hadn't written it yet. I, I had started working on it, but told him what I saw of the story. And he said, that sounds good. I'll put in this amount of money. And then I went to my mom and said, hey, any chance you can match this? Because if you can, I think I can make a movie. And she and her husband talked to their accountant and came back and said, yes, we'll send a check tomorrow. And I cried. And then uh, it, I was at Plum Street Cafe in downtown and got the call, cried a little bit, and then like started writing. <laughs> I was like, oh, crap, I got to get the script done. So that- but, yeah, so I had been in Cincinnati 2015, 2016. We, we shot in August 2016, and then I was there uh, until August 2017, which is when I moved to New York. 
So what the most of the filming was completed in 2016. Uh, yes, most of the film was shot in over 12 days in August 2016. Okay, which was a heat wave, and the house had no air conditioning, so that was fun. And then we had to do pickups. So basically, you know, I <laughs> we shot the movie. Uh, I went and slept for a week, and then the next week started, you know, kind of was delivering everybody's like final checks and everything. Um, and my, my girlfriend and I had not had a chance for a date night, you know, in months because of this thing. So we finally have a date night and she breaks up with me. So then I had a month of feeling nothing and then a month of flittering between anger and sadness. And then I kind of started getting, and you know, and at this, and I was editing the movie. So you know, I have friends that are just like, Hey, we know that you're struggling, but like, you should really get to work on the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. So, yeah. So I tucked in and started editing. And then I guess like probably like February 2017, somewhere around there, like I finished the assembly cut, which is just where you put all the scenes together. And it's not very good. There's a story of George Lucas telling Steven Spielberg, if you if your assembly cut is good, your movie is probably bad. Because it's huh. not been refined or anything. It's not, you know, um, it doesn't really make sense, but it's a very nice thing for him to say to his friend who was struggling. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I, I put it together. It was an hour and 50 minutes long and it was bad, but the ending always worked. So it was just a matter of like, okay, well, let's just get to the ending faster. And we finally, in early 2017, got to a cut where it mostly worked, but the first act didn't. So, uh, and we had no money left. So McLeod flew himself back to Cincinnati. We went back to the house. We shot by Mount Airy Forest on Quant Avenue. We went back to the house. We shot. We kind of reconceived the first act. Also the ending. We had to kind of change the ending because the montage that ends the film wasn't there at the time. So I'd had that idea. And so, yeah, we just we kind of scrambled a couple friends together and shot a few things, cut the movie together with that stuff. And I was like, okay, this is much better. But it's still not like there. And we were showing it to friends and getting lots of notes and eventually realized like, oh, okay, this is why it's not working. Like these key scenes like aren't conveying what they are supposed to convey. So we went back to Cincinnati for another four days of pickups to rethink those scenes, you know. And I mean, this was one where it's just like, let's just meet back there and, and figure it out. Like I didn't even have anything written. It was just, well, okay, we know the problem. So we can solve it. Like, you know, we, we didn't even know the problem before. So we got back and it was just McLeod and me playing in the house. Uh, Sydney Vollmer, who plays Rosie in the movie, uh, lives in Cincinnati. And she came and helped us out a couple days and helped, you know, because like the big thing that didn't work at that point was music is a very big part of the movie. It's especially how the two main characters connect and one of the devices is that Jack McLeod's character sings to himself while he works. And she was a singer in life and responds to this, but because it was just him kind of incidentally making up songs, like as he went about his day, it didn't land for the audience. So that was where, uh, you know, the idea for him to actually perform yellow cotton dress in the movie came from. Um, and we knew that we knew we wanted, we needed to bring Muriel in, you know, you, the movie opens with her 
but then it's like 30 minutes and McCloud just on his own. And it's like, okay, we got to bring her in. You know, it can't just be vo- disembodied voice. And so Sydney, you know, we, we went and bought a black wig at party city and she brought a black shirt and I just shot over her shoulder. And that's how Muriel is in that scene now. <laughs> wow. So while you're doing all this, are, is this your only job at this point? Or are you still doing, you know, PA work here and there? Cause I got a buddy out in LA that kind of, his wife works full time, but he, uh, you know, he does a podcast. He does PA work here and there. He worked on Naked Attraction was one of the shows he PA'd. Uh, was are you doing that, or were you were you fully able to do this since you had the money behind you? Well, we had we had no money left. I I, I also work in audiobooks. Uh, McLeod is a big narrator, and I direct. And at the time, I was prepping, which basically prep just means you read the book. Uh, you make a pronunciation key for any words that need their pronunciation clarified, um, and then you, if it's a if it's fiction, you also kind of like give a breakdown of the characters, uh, any voice cues. You know, if if on page three hundred it's finally said that somebody has a gravelly voice, you know, you don't want to have to like re-record the entire book up to that point. So I was doing that and making a little bit of money, uh, and that that kind of kept me afloat. And then yeah, just. I would wake up at 7 a.m. I would roll out of bed and start editing. My desk was right next to my bed. I would edit until like 1 or 2 o'clock when my brain was just fried. I would go downstairs, grab a beer, and just sit on my back porch in Lakeside Park and like soak up the sun and listen to podcasts and drink probably a Braxton beer. Uh, (laughs) I just – like that was my every day. It was just like get up, burn myself out go recharge. And then, uh, and then if there was book work, you know, kind of find a way to balance it. Um, I remember at one point I was so busy that like, if I was working on the movie, I would yell at myself for not working on a book. And if I was working on a book, I would yell at myself for not working on a movie. And if heaven forbid, I just like sat down and watched something. Oh man, I was vicious to myself. (laughs) And at some point I was just like, dude, you gotta not do this. Like you can only do one thing at a time and like, you know, chill out. And that helped. So now I'm, I feel like I'm finally learning how to balance and modulate work. So I noticed um, this, I kind of stumbled on to the film. I was watching the Fox 19 morning news uh, last week. And I think T.T. Sternensi was reviewing the movie. And there's uh-huh. a scene and I'm like, wait, that dude's wearing our King Records shirt. <laughs> yeah. So how did, how did Cincy shirts get mixed up in this? This must've been before I was with the company full time. If you were filming in 2016 and 2017. One of the few things I actually knew what I was doing, uh, I knew that we needed to clear things. You know, you can't just wear a logo. You know, it's actually a huge deal when you're shooting something. People, you have to tell people, like, please wear something with no logos on it. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't want to do that. Like, in my experience, most people don't walk around in, like, logo-less clothing. Especially somebody – working a blue collar job. Like I've worked, I've been a maintenance man. I've loaded airplanes. Like I've worked a lot of these menial jobs, you know, you wear a t-shirt. And so, uh, I had the idea to go to Cincy shirts and say, Hey, do you guys own your logos? And they said, yes. And I said, that's awesome. Can we have a few? <laughs> and they were great. You guys, like you guys completely threw your doors open. McLeod, Got here about a week before we're filming, and we went to the store, and he picked out the uh, the, the Pete Rose shirt that he wears yep. with the 14, 
and he picked out the King record shirt. We got two of those because it's so much of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other shirt is Braxton because they were the, that they were the other sponsor. But yeah, you guys, you guys are in the credits. Jack shirts provided by Cincy shirts. There you go. All right. Well, there you have it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was with the company at that point, but I wasn't like full time. I was part time events person. But uh, yeah, uh, that's how I didn't know about this. I thought I mean I need to go to more staff meetings. But okay, this this is before <laughs> my time. Speaking of the soundtrack, can you find the soundtrack anywhere? Is there a Spotify. I'm I'm a third of the way through the film. Uh, I got to watch a little okay. bit of this morning because I got a little. The day got away from me yesterday after you sent me the link. But um, uh, so far I'm digging the soundtrack. Where can I find it? Or can I? There is a Spotify playlist that has a few of the songs. It has Yellow Cotton Dress. Uh, that's obviously on there because that's our that's kind of our main song. It has Years Go By, which you haven't gotten to. Uh, it, like the, we have two songs from the Bengsons, which are kind of based between Dayton and Brooklyn. I I I, I met them because they were sh- workshopping their show Hundred Days at the No Theater in OTR, and just fell in love with their show. And met them in line for coffee a couple days later, and was like, "Oh hey, uh, I'm I'm making a movie. Do you think you guys would maybe be okay with us using some music?" <laughs> Uh, especially like when you see it, the ending, I was out with my then girlfriend and we were talking about whatever. And suddenly I just saw the ending. It was a garage and the song is playing. And I was like, Oh, I know, I know, I know how this movie ends. And that conversation was over. Cause I had to like run and like write it down on a napkin. Yeah. Uh, it, a bunch of it's on Spotify. Punk kid by honey, honey is not, we're hoping they, we're hoping it's able to be added soon, but it's kind of a, a rare – for whatever reason, Honey Honey has had the extreme fortune – Not this is not for whatever reason. Honey Honey has had the extreme fortune to like have a label for all of their albums. Uh, Punk Kid is the only song of theirs not owned by a, a label. So, And we've been friends for a while and I met them when I was living in L.A. And so I just emailed Ben like, hey, can I have Punk Kid? Because like, I can afford friend prices, but I cannot afford label prices. Um, I think I've heard and, of them because my daughter is a fan of a band called Honey, spelled H-U-N-N-Y. And I was looking through Freegal one day and found Honey Honey. So I think I might know these cats. Yeah. Okay. Oh, they're great. They're a little. They're kind of a kind of folksy, bluegrassy, just a duo. Ben and Suzanne. She's amazing. Her voice is just like if you ever get a chance to see them live. They opened for a guy at the the Taft, like in the main theater, and she just fills the room with her voice. She's so good. Yeah. It was the whole soundtrack is friends. It's just like uh, I spent my 20s going to shows at Southgate House and Mad Frog and all these places. Oh, Mad so, Frog. Who? Uh, Man. Yeah. A, my wife's friend <laughs> See, used got, to live above the I Mad got my Frog. Cincinnati Bonafides. Yeah, yeah. That's that's proper. Yeah, that, uh, my wife's friend used to live above the Mad Frog when we first moved here. Uh, oh, God, years I don't need that person at all. Yeah. We need a shirt <laughs> of the Mad Frog. I got to jot that down. Mad Frog shirt. I forgot. And yeah. I. For years after it closed, the sign was still up, and you leaving Clifton, going back to the Eastern Hills, you drive right by it there, where the corner where uh, you know CBS is on the other corner now, and the old McDonald's was on the corner, and it's since been torn down. But uh, yeah, wow. All go. I ask is a free one. Okay, I'll, I'll make a note. <laughs> I'll put that in our in our. Thread. But yeah, I was just going to a ton of shows, and so I knew a lot of musicians. I mean, I, I actually knew Wussy since before they were a band. I remember watching Chuck play at the barrel house 
in OTR with the ass ponies. I never saw them at Sudsies, but at Sudsy, Sudsy Malone's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I saw them at Barrel House, which I really miss. I liked the Barrel House a lot. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I just spent all my time going to shows in Cincinnati and getting to know everybody. And then once this became a real, like a real movie, like a viable project, I just reached out and said, Hey, can I have a song? And then in the case of, uh, you know, the CD seeds have a, have a song in it. Well, Margaret Darling, like we became friends, you know, I had asked her to help me write a song that, ha- that, um, is at the end of the movie. And we had a really good time doing that. And I said, actually, like, what do you think about scoring the movie? And she had never done that and was kind of on her way out of doing music, but decided like, oh, that'll be a fun kind of last hurrah. So she she uh, she wrote the score. We, we worked together on that a lot. And then, uh, yeah, there's just this movie is just dripping Cincinnati. <laughs> wow. Let's kind of get to uh, as we were kind of running short on time. We're getting to the bottom of the hour here. So the you get the movie edited finally, and then what happens? How does it get? You know, you said you were mentioning earlier about you know finding distribution and doing all that other stuff. How does it make that those final few steps uh, to the what they call I guess in the what Amazon calls the last mile? <laughs> how does it make it the last mile from being a completed movie to where people can consume it? We we got it to a point where we were happy with it, and we started submitting it to festivals. And McLeod submitted it to Fright Fest, which is kind of, you know, one of, if not the biggest genre festival, film festival in uh, in the UK and Europe in general. But so he had submitted it to them. At this point, I didn't even know Fright Fest was a thing. He didn't tell me he was doing this. I'd never heard of this festival. And one day I'm in Delaware visiting my mom and we go see a movie. We go see Ford, Ford versus Ferrari. And uh, I will always have a like a soft spot for that movie because of this story. We get out of the movie. I go to the bathroom. I turn my phone back on, and there's an email from Paul McAvoy, who's one of the four directors of Fright Fest, saying, "We just watched the Ghost Waits. We loved it. It's in for Fright Fest Glasgow." And I just like called McLeod and told him, and then I went out and c- hugged my mom and cried again because that's what I do. And then. Uh, and there's a documentary actually on Prime about Fright Fest. So I was able to like at Christmas, I went down to Austin to hang out with my dad and sister and we watched the documentary and it was cool to kind of like put a face to the names I'd been emailing. Um, so they programmed it in their Fright Fest Glasgow Festival, which is part of the Glasgow Film Festival. I flew over. I got my passport in order to do that. I went over for the world premiere, and it was amazing. The it was like we sold out the the this house of like 410 seats. The people laughed and cried, and like at the end there was this really lovely applause. And uh, there's a video both on the Blu-ray and just online of the Q and A where I again start crying because I was just completely overwhelmed by the moment. And Arrow. Uh, video, who is our distributor, they're a presenting partner of Fright Fest. So uh, Mike Hewitt, who who was at the time the the head of marketing and publicity, um, was there and had gone had had ridden up with the directors of Fright Fest uh, and asked them on the train, like, okay, what do I need to see? And they all said a ghost waits. So he was there for that and was like, oh, like this really resonates. Okay, that's good to know. And then Fright Fest decided to bring us back for their main event in August, which ended up being an online event, obviously. This was last year. 
And I think Arrow was kind of – I think it was – the thinking was because it's such a small movie and it's fairly idiosyncratic that it was like, well, let's make sure that we weren't just in like the one room where it really plays. So it played last August and again had this huge response and we won a few awards and that's when Arrow was like, okay, this this might be a thing that we want to do. And then you know we had a little run in October with a few festivals and won some more awards and they, yeah, the, around then they had emailed and said, we'd like to acquire the movie. And that's when I learned about deliverables, which is like, you know, you think, oh, you make a movie and then you just sell it to the distributor and you're, everything's fine. But like, no, like there's so many little things that you have to like, you have to deliver the subtitle files. You have to deliver like, you know, all the, all the footage. I mean, just, you have to deliver everything. So that was, that was a really cool education. And then, yeah, like. Once we had everything in place and, uh, you know, it made its premiere on their streaming service, they wanted it to be the, the key title of their launch in February. So on February 1, it went up. And and then just a couple weeks ago, uh, on May 4th, uh, it was it's now out like on VOD and on Blu-ray. It's out in the world. And it's crazy because you know, for five years, it was a project on my laptop, <laughs> the laptop I'm talking to you now on. We had our North American premiere at Scream Fest out in L.A. in October. They, they, it was very important for them to do an in-person event, so they made it a drive-in. And so we got to see our movie at a drive-in, and it finally felt like a real movie instead of just a, proj- a project on my computer. And we kept kind of tinkering with things and we swapped out a song at the last minute and like just little stuff here and there. But it's been fascinating to like not have to to just not work on it anymore. It's done. It's out. And now I I, I get to talk to people about it. But like it's just every now and then it's like, man, it's so weird to have spent five years doing this and now just not, you know, and, and, you know, I'm working on what's probably going to be the next movie. But yeah, that last mile. I mean, it is. It's a. It'll it'll take it out of you. It's it's fascinating and just wonderful. We can. I we never thought it would ha- have the legs that it did. This response. The response has been so much bigger than we have, we have even dared to dream. People can buy physical copies of it. I guess you can also watch it on Amazon Prime. I believe. You can rent it on Amazon. Okay. Uh, it's not part of Prime, but you know, it's only like I think it's like six or eight dollars. It's iTunes, Amazon, and Google Play, with a few more sites coming soon, I think. But um, and then if you want to buy it, you know, that was like it was so awesome. I mean, we don't have the camera on, but like it, you, over my shoulder, you would see. I love physical media. I have a lot of Blu-rays and DVDs. So and I, but it's that's going away, you know. And I realize that I may never get to make another Blu-ray. So when Arrow, whose bread and butter is like they're like the Criterion Collection you know, over there of, of, of genre film and, and cult film, you know, they said like, we're, no, we're doing a proper Blu-ray. And I just dove in. I like, we have eight cast and crew interviews. We have three commentaries. We have a, a blooper reel. Um, there's a video essay about the subgenre of kind of horror romance, ghostly romance in particular. There's, I even did the menu. Like when you first, when it first comes up and it's like play movie, special features setup. Like I even designed the menu. <laughs> I am so proud of this thing. And yeah, you can buy that either. Uh, I mean, Amazon has it. Uh, Diabolique DVD has it. I want to say it's like $28, but it's 
Yeah, it was crafted with a lot of love. Uh, but if physical, physical media is not your thing, rent it on VOD. It's like $8. All right. Well, there you have it. Um, yeah. well, wow, this is a lot of fun. I learned a lot uh, about filmmaking and, and, and whatnot. And uh, our cool. last order of business on these, if you've listened to our podcast before, is uh, as the guest, you get to pick the coupon code that folks can use in our stores and in our online stores uh, to take 20% off their next purchase. So uh, what would you like that coupon code to be? Ghost love. Ghost love. All right, perfect. Ghost, let me jot that down <laughs> so I can put that in the... All right, super. Well, folks can use that either uh, at uh, cincyshirts.com or oldschoolshirts.com to get yourself a King Records shirt like uh, McLeod wears in the film or any other shirt you want. Uh, and yeah, and uh, so uh, thank you for joining us today, uh, Adam. We really appreciate it. And uh, you, we can look forward to, to another film. Is that your next project? Or you, you, will you be working for someone else in the future doing something? Or what's the what's the plan? Yeah, what I'm working on right now is another film. It's a time travel road movie with a little bit of disaster movie sprinkled in. Ooh, all right. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's like the hardest I've ever worked on a script, but it's like it's it's pretty good, I think. Sounds um, good. So I'm trying to finish the the second draft of that because I forgot to put a second act in the first draft, so I had to fix that. Okay, uh, well, great. Yeah, well, that's if, it, if it's a time we're, travel we're in the thing. Home stretch and yeah. yeah. Thank you for having me on, by the way. This was so cool. You know, movies of our size live and die by word of mouth. So sure. it really means a lot that you wanted to talk about it. Great. And if it's a time travel thing, hit us up for some more shirts. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, outfit the whole cast. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Adam. All right. Thank All right, you. Bye-bye. I never knew your charity, but I know. Adam Stovall, this is the aforementioned CD Seeds with our track O Cincinnati. You can find that on Bandcamp. That's where I got it. Uh, that will cost you 90 cents. I uh, coughed that up so we could use that on the show here today. Um, also, Mad Frog is still on, folks. Right at the corner of Easton, McMillan, and Vine. Uh, find them on Twitter and Facebook. I'm sorry I killed them uh, before their time, but they're still in business. Looks like they're going to be booking some shows. So uh, do check that out as uh, live music returns in the area. Be sure to tell friends and loved ones about this show, including folks who may no longer live in the area, but still feel connected to the Tri-State. If you haven't already, check out the Cincinnati Shirts podcast archives. And today's show is produced by me with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They are from Philadelphia, actually. Find their music on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your music. Find vintage tees from great places like Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, Philadelphia, and more at OldSchoolShirts.com. Like Cincy Shirts, same mix of defunct teams, old stores, old malls, restaurants, that sort of affair. Again, like Cincy Shirts, but for those towns. And again, the promo code for this episode is Ghost Love. That's all one word, all lowercase, all uppercase. You know the drill. You can use that to take 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order, or go to Hyde Park or Over the Rhine and use it in one of our stores. That includes the Over the Rhine print-on-demand process. You can use it for that as well. Just tell me you want to use the promo code GHOSTLOVE from this week's podcast. Follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest in T-shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream this next time. Bye. Hey!